just a, a quick housekeeping thing here. If you look at the bulletin this morning in the outline section, which is on the back there, uh, if, if you, you know, if the bulletins are something you use, uh, and it says, ask an answer to what, where, or who do you turn to satisfy the longings of your heart? Um, that is going to be around about the topic that we talk about today as we look at the passage. Um, but I, about late Friday afternoon, I started tinkering with the sermon a little bit, and then tinkering turned into rewriting, and so I changed some things. Um, and it was too late to get it, you know, reprinted or anything like that. And so that won't, that particular sentence won't flash up here behind the screen at any point. And for some of you people who love outlines and are just waiting to, like, jump on it and fill it out the right way. I didn't want you to feel lost or, or cheated or anything like that. So don't, don't wait or look for that. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about lots of other good things, I, I promise. Um, well, this morning, we continue our sermon series entitled Answering Jesus. And it's our hope that over the next few weeks, as we take a look at some amazing conversations uh, that Jesus had with people just like you and me in the Gospel of John, uh, we'll have this chance to learn about how Jesus challenges each and every one of us to ask the kind of questions and seek the sort of answers that will help us in our pursuit of faith in Jesus Christ and our desire to experience God and all of life. Last week, Pastor Steve began this series by looking at a passage found in John chapter 3 that challenged us to ask a basic foundational question of Christian faith. Have you been born from above? Right? Have you confessed your need to be saved from your sins, and have you been spiritually reborn as a daughter or a son of God? To say yes to this question is to say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and has given me eternal life. This rebirth, is graciously, this rebirth graciously addresses our need to be granted salvation by a power far greater and far beyond that of our own. Salvation must come from God and God alone. This morning, we're going to consider another need that I'm sure we have all experienced at some point in our lives or another, and perhaps are even experiencing today. Our need to satisfy a longing that seems far greater and far beyond our abilities to fulfill. This is far more than trying to figure out how to get what we want out of life. We all have those little things that, that we know that we enjoy that provide a, a temporary sort of satisfaction. The perfect cup of coffee or the smell of books, the perfect Saturday with our friends or our family, or if you're like me and an introvert, a perfect Saturday with nobody else at all, <laughs> a job well done or a long sought after achieved goal. These are all good things that we should be thankful for. We should raise our praise and thanks up to God for, for these sort of things in our life. It's right to be thankful to the God who loves us. But what we're talking about today are not the things that we want, and it's even a little bit beyond the things that we need. Today we're going to look at the deep longings of our heart. We're going to talk about the sort of things that occasionally keep us awake in the middle of the night. The things that we know that no matter how hard we work or how hard we try, we'll never be able to figure out on our own. And the reason that we can't take on these deeper things and, and these deeper longings all by ourselves is that because we're not the ones that were meant to satisfy them. Only Jesus can do that. So the question we want to consider today is, are you allowing Jesus to quench the deepest thirst of your soul? Are you allowing Jesus to quench the deepest thirst of your soul? The action in John 4 gets started when a Samaritan woman stumbles upon a very tired and thirsty Jesus waiting by a well in the middle of the day. 
In John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came, down to, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. To a first century reader, this opening scene would have been all kinds of strange. First of all, Jesus' decision to pass through Samaria on his way to Galilee is a little curious. It was the fastest route between Judah and, and Judah and Galilee, but centuries of bad blood and hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans led most Jews to take the long way around, either heading west and moving up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea or heading east and, and following along the, co- the, the shoreline of the Jordan River. But Jesus ignores all these, cultural, you know, all these cultural expectations and just casually strolls into the heart of enemy territory. Then there is the time of day at which this whole scene plays out. In verse 6, John says it was about noon. It was about 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, it's unlikely that Jesus was waiting by anything other than a small circular stone wall, maybe, maybe a few feet high and a few feet in diameter, surrounding a hole that went down about 100 feet into a pool of still water. It's not like this spot is, is a cantina or some, side of, some sort of roadside end. At noon, the sun would have been beating down from high in the sky, eliminating all shelters of shadow and shade as it radiated its midday heat. This is a very odd time and an odd place to meet. And then there's the lone Samaritan woman. It would have been highly unusual for, for a woman to come to the well in the middle of the day by herself to get water. Normally, the women of a village gathered early in the morning and traveled to the well together, enjoying the safety and the fellowship that the group provided as they carried out this first of their many daily tasks. So the fact that the woman comes by herself during the hottest part of the day, nearly guaranteeing that she'd be alone throughout her entire trip, that raises some red flags. We're never told precisely why this is her practice, but it seems reasonable to assume that she either did not want to be among the other women of the village, or maybe the other women of the village didn't want to be with her, didn't want to be seen with her, wanted nothing to do with her, and possibly a little bit of both. Something in her life had created broken relationships with some of the people in her village, and the result was that she walked to the well alone. And it's in this hot, uncomfortable, lonely moment of her day that she unexpectedly meets Jesus. And it's funny that that Jesus tends to like to do this, likes to meet us in, in these moments where the last thing we're doing is looking for him. One of his favorite ways to break through our hard hearts and shine a light in the darker places of our souls is to show up unannounced in the middle of the day and say, hey, I've got something to tell you. I've got something I need to offer you, and trust me, it's going to help you in ways that you can't even imagine. 
At this time in history, Jewish men were also almost never alone with women that weren't members of their family. Rarely spoke to women in public, especially women who were not accompanied by their husbands, and if at all possible, never interacted with Samaritan women who most Jews believed were unclean from birth. Remember, these two groups of people really hated each other. So Jesus' entire conversation with the Samaritan woman was both socially bizarre and borderline culturally inappropriate. What he is doing here just simply was not done at this time and in this culture uh, at this point in history. But Jesus knew that this was something that he had to do, knew that this woman was someone that God wanted to hear the gospel. In verse 4, John tells us that Jesus' trip through Samaria wasn't one out of convenience. It wasn't just because it was the shortest route. It says that he had to come this way, that he had to enter a foreign land, that he had to offer this woman the good news that would change her life forever. Do you believe that Jesus pursues you with that same kind of determination? You need to, because it's one of the loudest messages ringing throughout all of Scripture. Nothing stands in the way of Jesus reaching you with the gospel and the message of God's love for you. What he offered to the Samaritan woman more than 2,000 years ago, he offers to you as well, even now today in this room. In verse 10, Jesus says that he could make the gift of God and living water available to the Samaritan woman. And then in verses 13 and 14, after she understandably misses his meaning, she, she assumes that, well, maybe he knows of another well, maybe he's found a, a yet undiscovered stream somewhere nearby, and, and she, she misses Jesus' meaning, so he tries to clear it up for her. And in verses 13 and 14, he says, everyone who drinks this water, the water from this well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Throughout the Bible, the imagery of living water is used to describe the many miraculous and merciful ways God saves us from the condemnation of sin and the consequence of death. In Isaiah chapter 55, the prophet beckons people who are thirsty to come to the waters of God and drink deeply to satisfy their longings for the Lord and to wash away their sins so that they can go out to the world in full joy and be led forth in peace for the rest of their eternal lives. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus will make it clear that this invitation to drink deeply of living water is really an invitation to draw closer to him. In John 7, 37, he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This is the same living, life-giving, eternally sustaining water that John will see flowing through and flowing from the throne of God and throughout the new kingdom of God in the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, he wrote, And the angel showed me a river of water, showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the great city, uh, down the middle of the great street of the city. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And the one who hears says, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of water of life. This is the power of God to wash us clean of our sin. This is a life nourished and satisfied by the inner spring of spiritual flourishing and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
This is the once and for all completed eternal work, eternally ongoing work of God and Jesus Christ deep within our souls. This is living water. This is the, and this is Jesus' life, and his life is life abundantly. Jesus makes this incredibly gracious offer, lays out everything this woman could ever want or ever need, everything her heart needs, with no strings attached, no preamble, and no qualifiers. He simply shows up in her life and says, I can give you everything your heart and soul need for eternity. Just ask me, and it's yours. Friends, that's the same offer he makes to you and me. Every day of our lives, Jesus is waiting at our well, at the breakfast table, at the coffee pot, at the bus stop, in our busiest moments and in our peaceful moments, in this very room, and he says to us, I can give you everything your heart and soul need for today and for all eternity. Just ask me, and it's yours. Here's the bottom line. If you have ever longed for eternal life, that is free from the burdens of sin and shame, then rejoice because that is exactly what Jesus longs and wishes and wants and seeks to give to you. If you want to quench that deep thirst within your soul for the everlasting life in the presence of a loving God, the the good news of the gospel is that you can. All you have to do is accept his offer and drink deeply from the wellspring of his life. But that's the catch, isn't it? It's accepting that what Jesus has done for us, accepting this gift from Jesus is, is hard because we often think we know what we need and we know what we want and better yet, we know how to get it. And we default to depending on ourselves rather than believing that Jesus is better than anything we can manage on our own. We get lost in the clutter of what else this life has to offer. We satisfy our longings with things that fall short, and then we pretend like that's not what we're doing because the alternative is to admit that we're not enough and that the things that we've wanted and desired and reached for are not enough. We get lonely, so we try to fill our lives with relationships and put unfair expectations on them that they will always provide us with happiness or that the people that love us will never let us down. And then when they do let us down, or when those things or those people fail, to provide us with happiness, we discover that this deep, relation, this deep desire for a relationship that doesn't fail us is dug deep into our souls, and it hurts to have it unfulfilled. We get scared and long for a way to make the world safer and more sensible, so we invest ourselves deeply in things that we feel like we can control. Health and wealth and politics, career paths, college degrees, social standing, even the practice of religion itself can be used to generate a false sense of security and self-control. And then when these things don't go the way that we planned, and they don't yield the things that we had that hoped that they would yield, we don't get the return that we had expected, we discover, that a, we discover a longing for that blessed assurance that we thought these things would provide, and having that unfulfilled hurts as well. And we get into this pattern of going back to these wells, back to these practices, back to these same people, and telling ourselves, well, maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe this time it'll work. And maybe this time I'll finally find the satisfaction that I've been looking for. That's the pattern of sin and suffering that the Samaritan woman was suffering and caught up in in our passage today. After multiple failed attempts to get the Samaritan woman to hear and understand and accept what he has to offer, Jesus changes his approach and instead turns his attention to gently exposing and very carefully treating what must have been the parts of this woman's soul that were most damaged by pain and sin, 
and self-reliance. It starts out with, a, with an awkward, intense exchange in verses, six, in verses 16 through 25. It's there that Jesus says, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, the woman replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. The Samaritan woman, it turns out, has a complicated past. She's been through five different marriages and now lives with a man who is not her husband. It's important to note that we're not given any details about what led to this woman's multiple marriages or her culturally dubious decision to be with but not married to this sixth man. It is certainly possible, and in the past it was a a popular assumption or popular interpretation, that this woman struggled with sexual immorality and that that contributed to the termination of her past relationships. But it is also just as possible, and perhaps more likely, that at least some of these previous relationships, some of these previous marriages, ended simply because her husband died, or maybe because her husbands divorced her. At this time and in this period of history, it was very easy for husbands to divorce their wives with very little cause. As is so often the case in all of our lives, the deepest wounds found in this woman's soul are probably the result of a messy combination of her sins, her misplaced longings, the sins of others, and the high cost of living in a fallen and broken world. We also see that in this passage, the Samaritan woman is struggling from, for lack of a better word, bad theology, something I'm sure nobody in this room has ever struggled with. Once she figures out that Jesus is some sort of prophet, she jumps on the opportunity to have her and her people's particular theological beliefs justified. The problem is the Samaritans believed the Jews to be heretics and rejected the Old Testament writings other than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They dismissed the writings of the prophets and had no special regard for the Davidic kingdom or the divine lineage that it claimed. In fact, their understanding of the word Messiah was someone who would be more like Moses, who would come and and help them reconstruct their religion and, and, and bring them back to right worship of God and the other gods that they picked up from some other cultures along the way at a place called Mount Gerizim. This is the worldview and the life that this woman has created for herself and that the world has, has led around her has led her to create. A lot of broken relationships, failed expectations, and a religion that at best gives her a Messiah who is an advice giver and maybe a reformer, but certainly not a savior. This is not a life better than the one that Jesus has to offer. And yet we do things like this all the time. 
We get caught up in the delusion that we can manage life on our own, find solutions to our own problems, and then when we do this, we reveal that our understanding of Jesus is far, far less than it should be. We prove that we don't really believe that Jesus is better or that Jesus is best. Do you want to allow Jesus to quench the deepest thirst of your soul? then you have to start believing and start accepting as truth that he will be better than anything you could ever do or anything you could ever find to try to take his place in your heart. We fill our hearts with so much junk instead of Jesus. And all that ever does is poison the well and cut us off from the living water that we so desperately need to be whole. We are all going to have different ways that we struggle to really and truly believe that Jesus is better than the cheap imitations of satisfaction that we try to find on our own. And the fact is, we can't just will ourselves into liking Jesus more than than the things that are around us and, and the ways that the world competes for our affections and our devotions. All of this only clicks together. All of this only starts to make sense when you see Jesus for who he really, truly is. And that's exactly the kind of gift that he gives to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 26, where he finally says to her, I, I'm the one speaking to you. I am he. I am that Messiah. In the Greek right here, it actually just says, I am, just like, he revealed him, just like God revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I am he, I am the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer, the Lord of life, the creator and sustainer of all things, the Son of God, the one who pays for your sins and who brings you into the everlasting presence of our holy heavenly Father. For the Samaritan woman, that moment of clear revelation changed everything. She abandoned her water jar, finally figuring out that that's not the water that she needs right in this particular moment, and rushes back to town, telling everyone that she can find, come, see this man, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? If you continue to read through John chapter 4 and get to verse 42, you'd find that the testimony of this woman, once lonely but now no longer alone, once struggling to find love but now forever loved by a love that cannot fail her, once caught up in religious obscurity but now freed into the fullness of faith, her testimony leads her entire town to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus leads them all to the amazing confession found in verse 42. The town turns to this woman who was an outcast, who was rejected, and says, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man, Jesus, really is the Savior of the world. This woman becomes one of the best evangelists in the New Testament. And all she had to do was open her eyes and see what Jesus was really offering. Are you ready to live the kind of life that is clearly satisfied in the person and the work of Jesus? Will you see him and know him as savior of the world and share with others that amazing truth? Are you going to allow Jesus to quench the deepest thirst of your soul? Over the last year, I've started a new practice that's directly related to to my own desire to to be close to God and to have Jesus satisfy my, my deepest longings. I try to get away and I go on a walk on one of Manhattan's many fabulous and terrific trails. If you haven't checked them out, you should once, you know, the humidity goes down. My favorite ones are the ones over by Washington Marlat Park, just west of Seth Child Road. And I don't take any music. I don't take any audiobooks. I turn my phone over to airplane mode. I do, however, take my dog because she's great. And while I'm there, I just walk 
and I talk to God, and I try to listen, and I try to keep the stuff out of my heart, try to remove the stuff in my heart that I've, that I've cluttered it up with, that I've, tried to, that I've reached for to try to gain satisfaction instead of reaching to God. Sometimes I pray about really big things. Sometimes I pray about really small things. Sometimes I just start listing off things that I'm thankful for. But the goal of these walks is simply to wander in the presence of God and be satisfied with the time that I've spent with him. And I can't make this make sense to you. I I can't give you a a logical, logistical way that this plays out. But what I can tell you is my personal testimony is, is that this works. Going to God and seeking him out works almost every time because he wants to be found. He wants us to be looking for him. And my longing to be with him is always rewarded by a deep, intense satisfaction of finding him to be everything that I needed and much more. During these walks and at many other times, I have found Psalm 107 to be true. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. I don't know what your, what your way to connect with God will be. I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's walking like mine is, maybe it's quiet times in the morning, maybe it's just reaching a breaking point where you don't have any other choice but to try and spend some time with the Lord, or maybe you'll be like the Samaritan woman and Jesus will just show up in the middle of your day and say, hey, we should spend some time together and talk. Whatever it is this week, I encourage you, please allow Jesus to quench the deepest longings of your soul. Don't go anywhere else. Don't go to anything else. Take the water of life that he offers. Surrender all your lesser substitutes and join those who, after seeing Jesus for who he is, really, truly, and joyfully confess him as Savior of the world, Savior of their life, and Savior of their heart. I can think of no better opportunity to seek out Jesus and ask him to satisfy the longings of our heart than than in the celebration of communion. Today, as we share this bread and drink from these cups, we are confessing together our need for a Savior, our need for the one who gives us the living water of forgiveness and eternal life. During this time, I would encourage you all to reflect on what Jesus makes available to you, the offers that he makes available to you of life, of his life and death and resurrection. Consider what you might be trying to find satisfaction in other than him, and then release it from your heart so that he can fill that space. Jesus is present with each one of us today, waiting to give us the gift of God and the water of life. Go to him and accept his gracious gift and renew your heart and renew your soul. At our church, anyone who has confessed faith in Jesus Christ and anyone who's confessed him as their Lord and Savior is welcome to join us in the celebration of communion. In just a few minutes, our servers will come forward and they will distribute the bread and the cups through, through the congregation. First, the bread will come and then that's followed by a tray of, of, the, of the cups. If you, have need for, if you have allergy concerns, there is allergen and gluten-free bread in the middle trays of the, of the bread trays as they go around here in a moment. We ask that after you receive each element, you wait uh, for, for everyone to receive it so that we can all partake in this together as a community of followers of Christ. If you're here today and you do not yet believe in Jesus, I just want to let you know that we're so, so very glad to have you here. We're honored that you would, you would trust us and make us a place where you're coming to continue your pursuit of truth and, and explore what Christianity is and what a church is like. Um, and I would just tell you that if you have any questions whatsoever, please feel free to seek me out after the service or send me an email. I'd love to have a conversation with you.
During this time, we'd just simply ask that you would help us out by when the, when the trays come to you, you can, you can take them and pass them to the person on your left or on your right. Would the servers please come forward, and as they do that, would the rest of you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Jesus, we long for you. Jesus, we long for a connection to you, a relationship with you, and for the new life that only you can bring. We know that you are eager to give this to us. We know that we are unworthy to receive it. And we also know that it is by your grace that you offer these things to us, not on the basis of our worthiness, but on the basis of your love. We come to you now seeking that love, and we praise you, Father in heaven, for the blessed assurance that whatever we seek, whenever we seek you, you never let us down. Your love never fails. Thank you for that amazing truth that your love never fails. Amen.